Park, it's the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 25, Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here. To review the book, I'm joined by, well, the gang, such as Mr. Stephen, a good fellow, Royston, and Mr. Morgan, a swell guy, a real macaroni, Brown. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) My name is Paul Abbott, and I've, uh, well, this is my gang. So we're all wearing colourful sheepskin vests with our logo on and nothing else. (laughs) You know the drill. For all the info on the show, it's available on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And if you visit hark87podcast.blogspot.com, you can get access to a whole bunch of useful information about McBain and the stories and what we've covered so far. And what you should also do, if you need a primer on the early days of the series, is visit the website crimereads.com, which I'm sure many of you listening to this do, and you'll find an exclusive article written by me called The Magic of Ed McBain's 87th Precinct. So look it up. And if you leave a comment, make sure it makes sense. <laughs> if you go and you can see there's some comments there, you might figure out what I'm talking about. <laughs> Did my last one not make any sense? <laughs> <laughs> that was you, was it? Um Also, you could drop us a review or a rating on whichever podcast app you choose. And why not tell a friend or possibly enemy about us? You know, (laughs) thank you very much. On with the show. You're being trolled online. No, no, No. I wasn't. There was uh, a... I'd hesitate to use the word pedant, but it's the right word. (laughs) Talking about the definition of the word pulp. Oh, and, right, yeah. and while I agree with what they're saying, it doesn't take into account the broader picture of how the term has come to be used. Mm-hmm. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> it may be someone who listens to this who might actually start making an enemy. Oh, no. Oh, you, don't, you don't want an enemy. I don't want an enemy. I'm a nice guy. You are? Well, am I? Yes, I am. So, <laughs> hail, hail, the gang's all here. Book number 25. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. 25, eh? Yeah. Nearly halfway. I know, it's strange, isn't it? Flying by. 25 is quite a significant number, really. So do you feel like this book's a bit of a celebration, perhaps? I, I think so, definitely. It's, it feels like he's sort of putting a flag in in the little kind of plateau he's reached to kind of mark, mark that uh, point, hasn't he? Yeah, so we'll get into why that's the case, what that, what that feels like. It was quite an important time for McBain himself. It was 1971 that this book comes out. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. And 1971's the year that Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, turns 45 years old. Mm-hmm. Also, at the same time, on the same day, P.G. Woodhouse turned 90 years old. And one of my favourite stories about McBain and Woodhouse's relationship is that on his 45th birthday, Woodhouse sent McBain a telegram saying, basically, today I am twice your age, but you remain twice the writer I am. Which, coming from Woodhouse... That's, yeah, that's, that's high praise cool, indeed. It? It's, you, know, you know, he's a titan of, of character and comedy, and, you know, so that's amazing. McBain, apparently, invariably used his highest term of respect when talking about Woodhouse, which was, he was a pro, <laughs> which is nice. And there was a quote from, from Evan Hunter, basically saying... He did the most gracious thing I've ever known any man to do. He sent a telegram to my agent, 
my agement. <laughs> oh, I've ruined that. Sorry, Evan. It was such a nice story. He sent a telegram to his agent and said, please tell Evan that he's half my age and twice the writer I am. So he clearly meant a lot to him. Yeah. That's quite nice. Lovely. I like that little story from 1971, the year mm. this book comes out. And before we get into the book specifically, other stuff that McBain, Evan Hunter, was doing in 1971, he had another book published under the Evan Hunter name called Nobody Knew They Were There, which is a good mysterious title Mm -hmm. for a good mysterious book, apparently. I have not read it, but it's. I read the pricey of it today. It's now published by Mysterious Press, Mm -hmm. run by Otto Penzler of the Mysterious Bookshop. Hello to Otto and the bookshop. But apparently the story is told in a near future. So, 1972. <laughs> yeah, very near future. <laughs> Depending on when you buy it. No, yeah. In a, yeah, in a near future where political resistance has, has been stamped out. Oof. And a university professor and his students hire a guy called Sam Eisler to carry out a political assassination on a train. Ooh, sounds great. Sounds cool, so, doesn't it? So they want it done so on a... ticking a lot of boxes there. <laughs> the train sort of got you both <laughs> to perk up. But apparently he doesn't want to do it on the train cause it, at the, or at the station because it's too busy. So rather than do it there, he decides to do it by blowing up a bridge, thus taking out the train. You know, yeah, sort that's of scaling it up somewhat yeah, in the stakes. <laughs> And, um, yeah, of course, he he falls in love with someone down the course of the story. But I don't know how it pans out, so it's quite mysterious. What's it called? It's called Nobody Knew They Were There. Mm. Sounds intriguing. Yeah, so it's now published under the Ed McBain writing as name, Mm. when it was actually an Evan Hunter book. Yeah. And that was the only uh, sort of literary thing that came out. There was two films based on his work. There was The Cry of the Cormoran, which we talked about on the last Mm. podcast, based on a horse's head in France. And also the French adaptation of 10 plus 1, Sans Mobile Apprente, which I can't find a copy of on DVD, which is a real nuisance. But I would like to see. Mm. Got an Ennio Morricone score, which would be pretty good. So that's basically what's happening in uh, Evan Hunter World in 1971. Busy boy. Yes. If we start at the beginning then, what do we think of the dedication in this book? (laughs) Yeah, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? Uh, I think I flew past that. Evan apparently a bit miffed at not having been given an Edgar Award by the Mystery Writers of America. No, he is the most. It's the most sarcastic dedication (laughs) in a book there's ever been. (laughs) But I'm also taking it at face value that he he thinks that there's ten stories in here, Mm. and we will we will examine that. I think. So he basically says it's dedicated to the mystery writers of America who, if they don't award it the Edgar for the best 10 mystery novels of the year, should have their collective mysterious heads examined. And I think, as always, with Ed McBain, where it seems funny at first, and then you also think, no, he also means it, doesn't he? Yeah, there's there's definitely there's genuine annoyance in there, isn't there? It's, who were uh, these people, though? Like fellow writers or... Yeah, well, I mean, or, he tags it on with a definition of coercion, so he's trying to sort of put a tongue-in-cheek thing saying, I'm trying to convince you here, I know what I'm doing. Mystery Writers of America, it's an organisation that was founded in 1945 with um, the main founder member, I believe, was Anthony Boucher. <laughs> but it was, was also, he the sycophant? <laughs> he was the positive reviewer yes. of, yeah. of, of Edmund Enthusiast. Gaines, well, he yeah. must win it every year then, surely. I don't... Did he ever win? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you all about it now. 
So the Edgar Awards are what they get, the Mystery Writers of America give out every year for the best story, best short story, best film in the sort of mystery yeah. and suspense categories. Yep. And it is a, it's a sort of it's like a trade body for mystery writers, really. Yeah. Their slogan is "Crime doesn't pay enough." Ah, like that. <laughs> it's very it's quite, clever. Yes. Snappy. So, who won in 1970? Well, well, I don't know. 19th, well, the year before he wrote this. Oh, that's a good ah, point. Yeah. Do you know what? I haven't I didn't look up who oh, no. I'll tell you about his. I'll tell you about McBain's background with it, because there's there's two things they do. They give out the Edgar Awards, but they also award someone the Grand Master for like lifetime achievement and consistency. So McBain was nominated for best short story in 1957 for a story called The Last Spin which is one of his ones that's often collected into different volumes. Uh, it's available in Learning to Kill now. And he was also nominated for his motion picture screenplay in 1964 for The Birds. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Didn't win, obviously. That's why I said nominated. But he did win Oof. Best Novel in 2002. Oof. So he had to wait quite a long time. So that oh, was for yeah. Money, Money, Money. Mm. Oh, yeah. Wow. But in 1986, he was made the Grand Master. Oh, right. Well, rightly so. So it's quite a high accolade for a mystery mm. writer, or you know, a crime writer, suspense Absolutely. writer, to be to receive that. Yeah, they probably want you, want you to be old before you get that, regardless of the quality of your output. Yeah, even even with 25 <clears throat> books to your name. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. well, you're only in your 50s or 40s, then. Yeah, forget it. Probably. So, yeah, mm. I should have really... I, well, all the information about previous winners is, yeah. is online, and I should have looked it up. Yeah. Well, perhaps we might, and yeah. we can talk about I it did, in a bit. did look up who won uh, in 1971 when... when uh, the year that this book right. was... Uh, yeah, well, well, when this didn't win. We'll take yeah, that'll that. do. Um, so, some, some corkers, all right, um, okay. including the, the Laughing Policeman, all right, uh, cool. Martin Beck series. Yeah, yeah. Terrific. Um, uh, beyond this... Point of Monsters by Margaret Miller, which is one I haven't read, oh, but right. um, yeah, she's good. Yeah, big fan of Margaret Miller. The Hot Rock by Donald Westlake. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that year. Um, and then a couple I've not Stiff heard of: um, Autumn of the Hunter by Pat Stadley. Nope. Many Deadly Returns by Patricia Moyes. I've and seen the name. I don't know. Yeah, me so did too. they give ten a year? Then did they? Did they I, I don't know if there's a set number, but they they seem to to give oh, out man. like a few in in each category. I think. Um, so it's not just one thing mm. that wins. And uh, The Hound, The Fox and The Harper by Sean Heron, apparently. All won the in 71. The Hound, The Fox and The Heron. It's very crowded, that one, isn't it? Like a Disney cartoon. Crime yeah. animal crossover. You can you can see why Oof. that did well. <laughs> but yeah, so, so some some good winners there, but uh, McBain not among them. No, no. Despite, we probably, got, <laughs> probably disqualified himself by putting in a sarcastic dedication in the book. This is somewhat, yeah. You'd probably all the other judges just did it out of spite for uh, Boucher, so <laughs> he didn't get his way every year. Um, uh, I think that's possibly my favourite dedication in, in a book so far. It's really, a good, given yeah. that most of them are just, you know, two sort of friends and yeah. things like that. That's the, the first time you've sort of gone, ah, look, come here, you lot. I think I've written ten yeah. amazing stories <laughs> in here. And before we get on to those stories, we all know where the, the title Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here comes from? Oh, I feel like I should. Trumpton. Trumpton? <laughs> no. Don't introduce Trumpton into the mix. At this. Obviously, McBain's well, referencing Trumpton. All the fire brigade. Oh, no, uh, that's Hugh, Camberwick Green, Hugh, isn't it? Barney McGrew, Cuthbert, Dibble and Grub. Yeah. 
Um, I Campbell can't remember where it comes from. It was, no. Well, I shall fill you in on that fact as well. It's a song. Mm. Okay, so it was a song that was written in 1917 by Theodora Morse, who also used the the pseudonym D. A. S. Rom. Okay. Which I think was to sort of disguise as a female writer of popular song, you know, and mm. possibly to split the credit between the music and the lyric mm. crediting. Based on a tune by Arthur Sullivan, who did Pirates of Penzance. Indeed. It was, well, there's tunes from Pirates of Penzance, anyway. And it was just a popular sort of song, quite popular in the wartime. Oh, like, as in, hail, hail, the gang's all here. That's da, the da, 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 da. Yep. That's the one. <laughs> Which in the in the sheet music is listed, hail, hail, the gang's all here, what the juice do we care? And I think juice is written in small, D-E-E. U-C-E, mm. is written in small letters as a sort of substitute for hell, basically, <laughs> yeah. I think, because I don't think they would have published it with hell in the, in the lyrics. Mm. <laughs> but basically, yeah, a song about a bunch of mates getting together and having a good time. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, the official chorus is, Hail, hail, the gang's all here. What the juice do we care? What do the juice do we care? Hail, hail, the gang's all here. What the juice do we care, Bill? <laughs> Quite who this Bill they're addressing it to is, is, I don't know who that is. It's never made clear. Lousy Bill trying to make people care about the gang being there. Yeah. Bill. Yeah. Just don't care, Bill. I have shared on our Twitter feed, actually, today, of the day of recording, which for fact fans is the 21st of May 2019, a YouTube of someone playing the wax cylinder of of a recording of this song. (laughs) So... You can find it. It's very well known, actually. It was it was quite a popular song in that sort of yeah. you know between the wars. Anyway, so that's where he's got this idea from for writing a book where he brings in everyone, more or less. Yeah. What do we think of the format? Any ideas, thoughts? Well, different, I suppose. Yeah. Um, he's abandoned the he, single main narrative idea. Yeah, well, he's got or, chapter names, which must be an, an absolute first, or part well, names. Yeah, he's he? divided it into two. Um, yeah. Uh, it, yeah Nightshade and Daywatch sound like a like a heavy metal band. <laughs> you, you get used to either a, a single narrative or a couple of intertwining ones. So what he tends to do every time that the format starts to get a little um, familiar and predictable. He's just pulled out a totally different format just to, to mess with us all. Well, we had the we had the one where he'd done... There was three short stories. Yeah, so there was a Copley. separate self-contained. Yeah, which in, book was that? That was The Empty Hours. Um, but this is different in respect that it's got... Well, I don't know, half, well, half a dozen or maybe... Is it five if you say there's ten intertwined stories in each half. Just telling the story of a, um, a, a, a kind of composite story of an entire day in the precinct. Yeah, some some more serious, some more throwaway and a bit yeah. daft. Yeah, uh, yeah, but showing a wide range of activities of um, what they get up to in a, a typical day. A few substantial plot lines and then also some little kind of vignettes of either slightly mildly comic bits or... But yeah, I think it was more better, better done somehow, or it works better than the uh, the empty hours in which. Yeah, because they stand sort of distinct, sort of little yeah. vignettes, don't they? Yeah, they, they did. Yeah, this is much more of a back in the precinct, the the hustle and bustle of the night shift, the day shift, hmm. and everyone basically being in it more or less. Yeah, and then you know you, sometimes you're like, right, who on earth are these people after? Now? I can't quite remember. Yeah, it's quite well done. Different, yes. and I'm not sure he ever returned. Does he do 
this again? Not really. I don't think no. so. Uh, yeah, I, I can't can't think of another example. But uh, I mean, he does mess with format. He continues to mess with format yeah. now and again in, in, in the series as it continues. But nothing like this, I don't think, where he's he's trying, he's got a handle on a whole swathe of officers we've never detectives we've never come across before, or we've only ever seen mentioned in mm. in passing or something, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, there's only two chapters in the entire book, isn't there? It's, yeah, so it falls into two sections. It starts with the night watch and then moves it the day. And if I just give you a sort of bit of information about the publication history of it, obviously it came out in 1971, number 25. It was published and serialised in, in various forms as well. There was a version of it in Argosy magazine. We do like Argosy magazine. That's featured a lot <laughs> Any of... copies of that? I've not got a copy, but oh. I'll, I'll give you the uh, contents to have a look at. In a yeah, <laughs> yeah. Always enjoy that. So in November 1971, so that was after the publication of the actual book, It was there was a version of it in there. It was also... The Nightshade part of it was featured in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine mm-hmm. in August of 1970. And also the Star Weekly from Canada that's cropped up the last couple of books we've looked at published the Daywatch oh, yeah. version in early 71 as well. Mm. So because I know Steve-O does like to have a look at this... Was this Argosy? The the contents for Argosy. He'll tell you what was in that episode of, or that issue, sorry, of Argosy magazine. Or the Bill that, Sorts. That this was in. So the top half Be of this page, sorts. Steve-O, if you could run down yeah. the contents. Bivouacking with the uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> Something like that. It's not far off. Atlantis, the legend. Is, the legend is becoming fact. It's not even... So someone was building Atlantis at the time. Well, at least, at there is convincing new evidence of an incredible lost civilization which sank in the Atlantic 12,000 years ago. No, there isn't. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Try the desert country for snowmobiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may not. No. But thanks for the tip. The world's most popular cartridges. Now, we ink know. Cartridges. Yeah, we know it does mean ink, don't we? Just all Six types of out of every ten shots fired are rim fires. That sounds, sounds, yeah. sounds a bit rude, <laughs> that, doesn't it? Watchdog for justice. Fingerprints don't lie. Like that. Well, they, it, they factor into quite a lot of these stories, actually, uh, the fingerprints. And then there's uh, quite an interesting one here. Fiction digging in at Morgan's farm. There we go. There we are. You cropped up again in this... In the tales, Morgan. Yeah, it must be fiction. This the army sent them off to war, but it didn't know that two of its soldiers had a mission all of their own. Exciting. Full colour illustration by Fred Ontz. Oh, now I'm sold. Yeah, well, Good there old we Fred. Go. Yeah, that, that's all really. So Duke of Edinburgh bivouacking and yeah, it's very very outdoorsy, isn't yeah. it? Very mannish. Pottery with. Um, Edward Heath, you know, they'd be in there. <laughs> that, perhaps the British edition, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine issue that featured it as well had stories by people such as uh, Nicholas Freeling, a Van oh, der Valk oh, story. Oh, that's the absolute hot topic with me at the moment, that. <laughs> and I still haven't watched any Van der Valk. Oh. Oh, we'll talk about it at some well, point. Yeah, off mic. Off mic. <laughs> well, pff, I don't know. I, don't uh, <laughs> I just thought you'd be interested to know that he was in that same mm. issue. Uh, a story by John Dixon Carr and a, a number of other names. They featured tons. God, the amount of fiction they published these things. Mm. It's, a, it's amazing, really. 
I will just say also for our regular listeners, we we've skipped the what was going on in 1971 section where we talk about film and music and oh, yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. I'm going to save that for the bonus episode okay. because I just feel the book's got... Uh, it's There's quite a lot to get stuck quite into, a lot isn't to, it? to go through, really. By popular demand, <laughs> we're not going to spend <laughs> ten minutes uh, guessing, guessing which bridge was built. Not, not in the main podcast, anyway. But, yeah. Ten minutes. Yeah. Op- optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in half an hour we will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Editing's a very powerful tool. Carry on. No, no, <laughs> no. I was just saying carry on. <laughs> well, all right, I will then. <laughs> I took the idea that there was ten plots in this, or ten stories in this, and tried, you, tried you, to figure it out. Are you right? Uh, well. I, I spotted nine, I think, but... Well, you've been counting. Oh, no, I didn't. I spotted eight. Well, I spotted nine, I think, are main stories, and I spotted another five that I think are that are featured as I was trying to work out if he was sort of saying it's ten stories is that one are they ones where the detectives have gone out and investigated because mm. there's a lot of stuff happens in this where it's just patrolmen bringing people into the precinct yeah. and people being processed at the desks of the detectives yeah I kind of wasn't counting those yeah so they're in my in my list of possible cases for the tenth spot in this so which year ten then okay I would like to know that. Taking Nightshade first. Oh, I don't know if I've got them in correct right. order. Oh, um, taking them in a mixed-up uh, order. <laughs> well, yes. there's there's the Mercy Howell killing is the first one, isn't there? There is, yeah. It opens with the stabbing of a dancer. Correct. One. I have then the bombing of the storefront church. Uh, yep. So there's a definitely in there. A bomb thrown through the window of a church. That's Correct. I've got um, Mrs. Gorman and the ghosts. There's the ghost story in this. We must come back to that. Yep. I then have the murder of Lewis Scott, which is in the second part of the book. Is thrown out of a window. Yep. I also have a shooting of a store owner and Detective Andy Parker. Yes, So there's some high-stakes police violent... Violence on police? I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, but Parker's ploy of putting himself on a plant in a grocery store not paying off quite so well this time. No. Hmm. What else have you got down there, Morgan? I've got um, the mugged corporal in the Marines. Yes. I've got an assault on a guy called Jose Huerta. Gets his legs broken, that guy. Yeah, pretty much on his own doorstep. And I have two missing person cases in my list. Yes. Penelope Blair, the girl... Yeah. The daughter of someone, and Donald Ellingham, the husband of someone. Ah, yeah, forgot about him. So that's nine. Yeah. So those are the ones that actually have investigations happening, or something happens where it doesn't. Ju- it's not just a one-off paragraph or block of activity in the station. Even if an investigation doesn't have to happen in the case of Donald Ellingham, because this woman comes in and she's really worried about where her <laughs> husband is. And Arthur Brown saying, look, I will look into it. I'll come and see you later. And by the time he gets there, he's got to interrupt them mid-rumpy-pumpy, mid as they said in the 70s. They are making up. Yes. So, so he doesn't really have to investigate that one, he but he does doesn't. have to follow it up, which is why I have it on my main list of 10. Good point. Yeah, that definitely counts. And then there's loads of ones that are basically the patrolmen bring in. Such as that one of the first ones in the book is a, uh, an eighteen-year-old kid who's br- been breaking off aerials mm. off cars, and he's brought in for criminal mischief or whatever it is. Yeah. There's a 
well, a pervert in the park trying to get kids to pay him attention, which I believe he describes as, the law describes as endangering the morals of a child. That's a seedy little section. Yes. There's a burglar who, <laughs> who oh, comes yeah. in, who's caught, he's caught breaking into someone else's house <laughs> as a bag full of tools and then sort of says, but I'm a carpenter. <laughs> he gets short shrift. He certainly does. And then there's a little, a, a bit like in See Them Die, there's a little sequence with two prostitutes and mm. a businessman who's visiting the city, yes. a big fat businessman. Yeah. It's very much like the, the, the two girls and the fat businessman in See Them Die. And he wants them, except in this case, he wants them done for prostitution and they talk him out of it. (laughs) So, really, it's just about his wounded pride. It Mm. very much is. Then, the only other one, which is the most violent one in the entire book, is only a a paragraph or two. Have you spotted that one? Was that the, the, this is the woman who, who kills her husband with a cleaver? Oh, a yeah. Cleaver? Yeah, her husband and yeah. her children. And her children, of course, yes. Yeah, I've forgotten about said. that, yeah. So it's an amazing thing of, like, that could be the main story mm. for a whole book. But she's just come in, or she's confessed to what she's done, basically. And she said, I've stabbed my husband in the face, I've stabbed me, smashed my children in the face, they're all dead, the little bastards. Essentially is More what she said. More or less, says. yeah. And they're just sort of like... What? Yeah. what? Best get the deer. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. I get fifteen. Uh, sorry, fourteen stories out of that. But I don't know which one of those last few I would promote to my main no. main ten. You see, no. I've set myself. Perhaps you just saw four four little tiddlers made one. Yeah. That's where he got his Perhaps. ten from? Yeah. Maybe he wasn't being totally accurate in the ten stories. Yeah. So yeah. So Maybe I'm there a, must be ten in here after he'd finish it. I'm applying a system retrospectively that uh, isn't necessary but it's a lot of stories whatever yes, it is there's a heck of a lot going on even if they play out quickly you know or they run for a little bit longer I think it's brilliant mm. and I like it because of the amount of new well new to us characters in it detectives mm. names we've seen once or twice perhaps on, yeah. on a like popping a, up on a, a duty roster or something that like that that sort yeah. of thing or maybe just in absolutely, literally in passing in one yeah. one thing as someone who's coming clocking on when they're clocking off or something like that. Yeah, it, it, it seems a bit... Knowing that these guys don't really crop up again, it seemed a bit uh, a bit sad almost because uh, they seem quite interesting. Some yeah, of well, one or two the of them... The Capek guy seemed quite... Yeah, one uh, or two of them do crop up again, but not very often. Seemed incredibly similar to Corella, thought Capek, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> so, yeah, so he's one of the main ones who, who has things to do in this. Carl Capek, or Capek, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, he's got a few investigations going on. And all the, the guys get all holding off their holidays. And some of those... Names we've seen before. Well, one yeah. of those guys, there's a detective first grade, who a big hairy man, mild-mannered hairy guy. Yeah, that's... And you just think, oh... <laughs> you want to know more about him? Yeah, yeah, detective first grade in his early 60s. He'd be like somebody totally different to the rest of He's called of them. Merriweather. That's, yeah. his, that's his name. Yeah. He's described as a mild-mannered hairbag. Yeah, I thought, <laughs> oh, God, why can't we have... Uh, some more of him, he sounds A whole good. spin-off series on mild-mannered hairbag Mary Yeah, Manor. so you're just getting a glimpse of these other guys. And Demao, is it? Or De Mayo. De Mayo. May- I, don't, I don't know how you pronounce no, that, yeah. I say Mayo. Mayo. M-A-E-O, De Mayo. Yeah. Yeah, so. He's 
He's he's one that's been mentioned a few yeah, times before, yeah. but in this one, he basically he's brought in off his holiday, and all he does is moan, <laughs> just moans about everything. He moans about being brought in off his holiday, which you can understand. Yeah. But he moans about the fact that Corella and Brown solved the the shooting oh, of, yeah. of Andy Parker and the store owner, and he's like, oh, "I'll bet they get promotions now. If you do something with a cop, you'll get promotion," <laughs> which of course they don't. They're, they're all they're all whinging because none of them like Parker, though, do they? <laughs> Even these guys, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not like when Corella's shot in some of the earlier stories and everyone's like, we're going to go out there and get him. Or, or even in Copator in the first book yeah. where it's like, <laughs> everyone's, <laughs> it's Andy Parker. They're like, oh, he survived. So, um, <laughs> But yeah, we get Cooperman, Detectives Cooperman, Delgado, Finch, Capek, Levine and Merriweather, as well as DiMeo. Well, DeMeo and Delgado have definitely been mentioned before, haven't they? I think so, I'm yeah. I'm sure they have. Kapek, has he? I think he was think a name he, on the yeah. duty roster as well. So perhaps he just, I don't know. Well, it's good that he's gone back and used these names yeah, rather definitely. than come up with a whole bunch of new ones. Just, yeah. But yeah, shame they don't crop up again much. Well, there could be a whole, again, there's a whole alternative 87th precinct <laughs> yeah. set of stories happening, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When Corella clocks off for the day and you, you just Kapek write about, comes You could in. just write about the other guys and... Yeah, you know, one of those Kapek could yeah. be uh, your, the, your main guy. Occasionally, reference something that would have happened contemporaneously uh, with, yeah. with the other guys. It's yeah. it's nice to imagine it's there. You know, it's yeah. a whole the the reality of the thing is, even though these stories don't actually exist, they could exist because this is the nature of how police work happens and yeah, how absolutely. the detective squads arranged and the reality of shift working. Talking about shift working, of all the charts and things in the books that you get, one of the most complicated oh, charts, yeah. the patrolman's schedules in this book. I didn't even attempt to get my head yeah, around it, I must confess. Of, I had a bit of a look of it, and I'm a big fan of complicated charts, but <laughs> it, yeah, it's complicated. It looks like one of those things you used to use for working out logarithms mm. or something. Log, log, yeah. It is daunting. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. If anyone can reckon that out, it's uh, it's in the first part. <laughs> well, it's the first part, page eighty-four in our book, and it's yeah, very complicated explanation of when patrolmen are in and who's in. Which, given that the stories aren't really about patrolmen, is, 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 he puts quite a lot of detail into explaining this as well. Although we do get quite a few patrolmen in this one who are named as well. Normally, when I write my little list of who's in an eighty-seventh precinct story. It's a list of detective names and then loads of unnamed unnamed patrolmen, unnamed patrolmen. Un- but most of them are um, named in this. You get a double hit of homicide detectives as well. Oh, you do. Because yes. they're, they're on shifts too. Yeah. Now, Forbes, and F- they've been in it before as well, haven't they? They have. Once. Yeah. I think they've been in it once before and they crop up a couple more mm-hmm. times as well. Just to keep up the idea that all pairs of homicide detectives are essentially exactly the same. Yeah. So it's writ larger because they, you know, you've got Monaghan and Monroe at the start of the book, and then Forbes and Phelps halfway through, and he's basically like, do they just share clothes? <laughs> these people turn up; they're exactly the same. But that's when they have at the start of the investigation with um, newly promoted Dick Gennaro, oh. and he's out with Hal Willis. Yeah, yeah. One of my absolute favourite things in this book is their relationship. Yeah, Gennaro's. He's totally useless, isn't he? He's great. I, I, like I, his, I like his totally irrelevant, pointless questions he asks as well. The the, the, uh, the sequence when he be- he becomes sort of dopely aware that Howellus is doing some clever police work <laughs> and he's just kind of sitting there like like he's watching a film. Yeah. 
when they go to the they go to the uh, the clothes shop owners and like Hal's asking a load of questions and they, uh, just one of the questions he asks is, is it a a jacket or a coat? Because <laughs> <laughs> so that has any relevance to anything at all. Yeah. And then they, they start a long the clothes shop owner start a long conversation with him about whether it, you know and Hal's just sat there thinking it doesn't matter. Hmm. And because he's newly promoted, you know, and he's really proud about being a detective, Dick Gennaro, it's funny because he's not particularly outwardly ego egotistical, but he likes to lord it over, like, the the patrolman. Yeah, so suddenly, even though he's he's younger than these patrolmen, he's starting calling them kid yeah. and things like that. And you could yeah. bet you'd be rubbing everyone up the wrong way <laughs> with his attitude. Well, he was an incompetent patrolman, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he's, he shot himself in the foot. Yeah. And got a promotion out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's brilliant the way he's, the, the sequence with where they're actually sort of apprehending two of the, the well, a criminal and his accomplice, essentially, at the end. And Hal Willis has to do a bit of action stuff to prevent someone running away. And Janeiro's literally like, he wants to, he says, he wished he had a bag of popcorn. Yeah. He wanted to ask the other person in the room if they were enjoying it as much as he was. Yeah, it's amazing. Gennaro felt great. He felt as though he were watching a Cops and Robbers movie on television. He didn't want it to end, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a lovely sequence where they go and they interview someone who lives in one of these blocks of flats where one of the incidents has happened and it's a, a, a larger lady and they're talking to her. And he, he's, by virtue of his politeness... He says, he says to this woman, Dick Gennaro says, thanks a lot, though, you've been very kind. And this woman smiles at him in such a way that's like so radiant, so happy and so so nice. He's, it, it almost knocked Gennaro clear across the hallway to the opposite <laughs> wall. And he's sort of going, what did I do? I've, I don't know what I did. What did I say? How and he's trying to ask Hal Willis. It's like, what, what, what was that? He's perhaps been a little bit unaware that he might be a young, good-looking Italian cop as well. <laughs> as well. And he just doesn't—he's just so lacking in self-awareness. He's, he's adorably clueless. I think um, yeah. I, I really enjoy him in in uh, in his new role. Yeah, he's and he fun. doesn't really get any better. No, he really doesn't. So that's nice, and I like the fact that it's Hal Willis that he's partnered up yeah. with, as sort of a, a cop who we really haven't had that much stuff from. Yeah. So far, but you know he's a sort of dependable character. And yeah, there was, was a couple of uh, was there some fairly early ones with him. Yeah, in he's had bit. his odd moments, but not loads. Um, he has a big run in the eighties, doesn't yeah, he? he really he's comes into the his main own. guy, all pretty much mm. for for about yeah for a good half dozen. Yeah, so he, he comes back strongly, I would say. And then Bob O'Brien, obviously cropping up. Bob O'Brien manages to get away without killing anyone yeah, in the line of duty in this one, which is nice for him. When are we going to talk about the Dutch ghosts? I think, you know, now you've brought it up, I think, I think it's time to talk about the Dutch ghosts. It'd, it'd be rude not to, really. This is one of the weirdest things. That... I was reading this, I instantly remembered what had happened, but I thought, has he, has he done this in another book as well, a similar... I don't know. Well, he wrote a book called Ghost. I know he did, but um, yeah. Anyhow, but yeah, I thought it uh, lasted longer. Where yeah. <laughs> so Maya Maya gets the rather bizarre case of some <laughs> of someone turning up and saying there's ghosts robbing jewellery from my house, and she seems like she sh- should be a sane person. Mm. 
and it makes him recall that not long ago they'd had a, a thing where a woman kept saying that a gorilla was coming to her house and he was having to ring around zoos to find out if there was escaped gorillas. <laughs> and the woman claims that he came back the next day wearing a cane <laughs> and a top hat or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so he thinks this, this woman's a nut. Oh, God, it's brilliant. I wonder how realistic it is in the world of police work. Well, in his defence, he only went because of who her father was, didn't she? Yeah. Uh, didn't he? So, yeah, some retired judge. Yeah, was, so uh, evidently held sway mm-hmm. somewhere um, along the way. Um, but, yeah, we don't want to We don't want to give away the, the outcome of that. Little, well, it's, it's, uh, it's such a strange thing. There is genuinely a ghost story in this. Yeah. In as much as Dutch? any story about ghosts is genuine. Yeah. How do you know they're Dutch? Well, they talk Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> but so, of all the things that happen in this book, the, this slice of, of you know one day's routine of shifts, the fact that Maya Maya ends up with the having to go out at, qu- at quarter to two in the morning <laughs> to, to see if some ghosts exist. And yeah, turns up and the person they're plaguing turns out to be blind having been affected by a chemical spillage. Mm. Like yeah, something nasty. out of Marvel. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah very uh, daredevil, isn't yeah, it? That's it, daredevil. Yeah. It all pans out all right, just about. Yeah, more or less. What's interesting, I, my, my little list of the various crimes that happen in this, I wrote little asterisks by the ones that actually have a resolution. Because there's a number of these where either they can't do anything, mm. like the woman whose husband comes back yes. and the missing girl who's who's old enough to just be missing. Yeah. She doesn't have to go home. Yeah. So there's no resolution to them. There's the ones where they obviously make an arrest or charge someone. And then there's at least a couple where they're just like, just let it go. Which of those? Well, essentially the one with the prostitutes and the big fat businessman. Oh, yeah. So it's like they convince him not to oh, take yeah, it further. Oh, yeah, yeah. They certainly it has yeah. a resolution though, doesn't it? It, well, it does, yeah. It gets them out of the precinct and out, yeah. out of there. But there's the one, the assault of Jose Huerta by his... Oh, yeah. Well, uh, possibly by his, his business, business partner's partner. brother. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason they give as to why someone might beat this guy up, and they're talking to Detective Delgado, and... He clearly, this guy just confesses. They're in a pool, uh, a bowling alley, aren't they? And Delgado makes the call of like, maybe justice has been served, mm. which is a really interesting moral thing to for a cop to do. It doesn't portray Delgado as being a bad cop, no, but he makes a sort of judgment a call, pragmatic cop, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. You don't always have a, a Corella character being like, well, this is the law. This is how it is. Because I'm not sure Corella would let that outcome happen no probably not i mean we've we've seen him occasionally sort of take a, a slightly pragmatic approach in terms of things like dealing with prostitutes and the thing the things yeah. like that he, there are certain he things make he's, some judgment calls yeah he's 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 occasionally capable of just sort of overlooking things but uh, yeah i know what you mean it it's it's quite a big one isn't it yeah <laughs> um so I think then with this book, have we got all the classic McBain things in it? Even though it's not a classic type of of eighty seventh precinct story, end to end. 
Well, if if your test is the uh, 87th Precinct bingo card... Which it always is. With handwriting... Reproductions of handwriting yeah. and forms there yeah. and there. Which, regardless of the perpetrator, are all fairly similar. Have you noticed that over the books? Yes. It's, it's, as, <laughs> it's as though... Anyway. Um, yeah, so it would score highly, but then he's quite unorthodox in, mm, in yeah. very other elements. But, yeah, it has... There's definitely Most there's the... definitely stuff about weather. Yeah. It's October, it's cold. Not masses of it though. But there was a couple of little reflections on the day, I think, and the night. There was these I I found it before which I knew I'd seen it somewhere. He's a literary reference because the guy who goes missing uh, and this, yeah. this can't be a coincidence. Donald E. Ellingham. Oh yes. There's no <laughs> way. There's no way he would have called him Donald E. Uh, <laughs> yeah. By um, chance is the a little tip of the hat to a, a fellow author there. Yeah. So, well, there's it, actually there's not masses of real world references in here. One there's, or two though. Um, the Arthur Miller reference. Yeah. The to, price. Do you know anything about the price? Uh, I, only I've, I've glanced at Wikipedia. It sounds. It doesn't make it sound very enthralling. I must admit. Um, play as far as I can gather about someone selling off some furniture uh, in the Depression. Yeah. Sounds kind of bleak. Won the Tony Award in 1968. Uh, yeah. Produced for TV in the early 71. So it was probably fairly. Uh, well, it would have been a New of, York play as mm, well, won't it? Absolutely, it, it, yeah. So. But yeah, it is literally about the price of furniture, I think, so it's probably mm. quite a literal. Um, yeah. Jimi Hendrix gets mentioned yeah, at some point, the, the doesn't other he? Thing, that's oh, something that we haven't had. Tower, yeah. We've never really had that before. I think there's been one or two music references, and they've always been sort of, in our terms, perhaps, been sort of quite old school, more sort of... Sort of Tim Panali kind of songs. Tim Panali, perhaps a bit of early sort of... Jazz stuff, yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's Jimi Hendrix yeah, in 1971, yeah. Doing, and he also says it was Hendrix rendering all along the Watchtower, so he acknowledges mm. that it's not a Hendrix song, <laughs> yeah. it's a, he's doing a version of it, Indeed. which is correct, of course. I like them, so some nice little bits and pieces. So that's sort of real Stool world Stool pigeons, tick tick. There's yeah, both you get of those. Fats Donna, always super skeptical about when they crop up generally. You mean just as a mechanism? Pigeon would be able to track down a stolen Volkswagen in the whole of a city the size of New York. Well, I mean, Fats Don is quite skeptical about his ability to do that as well, isn't he? Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Sometimes they do feel like a means to an end. Bit of a plot, a bridge, uh, a way to Christ. How are they going to find this Volkswagen in less than a month of searching? Yeah, in in a book where we can only assign them like this many pages exactly, because we've got yeah, another yeah, yeah, yeah. nine I'm, plots I'm to. Be, I'm being picky there. But, so, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think it's right. I think he does use them, those characters for that purpose. Yeah, I suppose. Oh, because, they're just a device, aren't they? I suppose. Yeah. Because otherwise, you'd be writing James Elroy style, you know, massive <laughs> gothic opuses, wouldn't you? You'd have to, yeah, go back and edit out all your non-essential words to kind of get it down to under a thousand pages. Yeah, and let it take place over decades or yeah. whatever. If, um, there was an article, an uh, interview with James Elroy in The Guardian yeah. this past I week. I just saw it, yeah. Which is brilliant because he basically says the only books he likes reading are Ed McBain's 87th Precinct he novels. He reads the entire series in order over and over again, doesn't he, apparently? Does he? Yeah. <laughs> we should get him to listen to this. How old is he now? He must be... 
be a good age now. He's been mm-hmm. writing a long, long time now. Um, but yeah, there's a new novel out, hasn't he? I think. Yeah, so I think that's why to. he's suddenly doing all these interviews um, and stuff. Yeah, not not a fan of Chandler, but a big fan of McBain still. I can sort of understand that from reading Elroy. Yeah, his, his type of stuff and Chandler. When you think about it too much, yeah, it is quite odd, really. But that's Private Eye characters. Yeah, generally speaking, it's a different way of approaching humanity. I think I think that definitely um, McBain's got more of a it's more of a precedent for that sort of like, tough, unsentimental kind of police writing, isn't it? And he mentioned uh, Joseph Wombo as well. Yes, mm. which yeah, I, I thought was uh, that made a lot of sense. And I also, yeah, I coincidentally I read something with um, Bain was talking about other authors, and he says I generally don't read other writers because I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Joseph Wambert, who has experience I don't have because he was a cop. Mm. Basically, Excellent. if on the subject of egos, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the one thing that is missing from this this book is there's very little uh, mention of family. There's no Teddy Carella. No. There's yeah. no scenes at home with anyone. Yeah, I suppose they don't. They, they, he just hasn't really given himself sort of time or space no. to to look into that. It's very focused on the the squad and what's going on there, isn't it? There is one strange reference though. At one point, Arthur Brown is thinking about his thinking back to when he was dating his wife to be, but in this book he calls her Connie, but his daughter's Connie, his wife's Caroline, oh, yeah. as the precedent has been set in other stories. Oh. So I don't really know. What's boob. Go- I don't know what's going on there. Oh, what's well, a blunder? Authors can do it. I'll just. Conan I... Doyle got mixed up with how many times Watson had been married, didn't he? You know. <laughs> and you'd think and that like, was quite easy to keep kind track of. Really, really fundamental. Yeah. So the only way you can make sense of it is he he was married twice, and yeah, <laughs> you don't know the name of one of his wives. It's just mad. So yeah, it happens, doesn't it? I can I can retrofit it by thinking of Connie as being like a a nickname for Caroline because mm. it starts with the same letter, and then they adopted that for their kid as a nice. That that's almost definitely exactly what it is, isn't that's it? That's how that's I'm it. choosing to square yep, it. Brilliant. When he's trying to fish the mask out the uh, yeah the drain. Oh nice yeah, seen that. Yeah, like that. I like the old little lady he'd gone been to see before. It was full of useful. Oh information. yeah, she was great. Yeah. So again, witnesses. Yeah. There's some, no. There's no out and out comedy witness, character. In a this. lot of witnesses in this, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. None of the kind of absolute eccentrics that you sometimes get either. But um, no. no. There's still some some decent little character portraits, I think, along the way. Yeah, there is. Um, and I think that's what this book's all about. It's portraits in miniature of detectives, of the people they meet, of the situations they find themselves in, that sort of thing. I'll just read to you just a quote from one review at the time from the New York Times, in fact, by from the Criminals at Large column. I know it's not Anthony Bowsher. He's, he's Anthony gone by Bowsher, this is the greatest <laughs> book I've ever read in my life. Until next year. Yeah. Well, basically, this review is says, Another skillful writer who has been writing essentially the same book for a long time is Ed McBain. Oof, well, might take that. issue with that. In Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here, he attempts a tour de force, taking the men of the 87th Precinct through some 24 hours of assorted police work. The night shift has a murder, a problem about ghosts, a racial bombing, a multiple murder, all unrelated, all solved on the same shift. Great cops. Sounds a bit sarky. <laughs> 
Um, that's sarcastic for people who don't know what that means. Not the author Sarki, otherwise known as H.H. <laughs> H. Munro. The day shift has, among other things, a murder, a robbery and killing, a missing person and assault case. These two are solved on the same shift. Great cops. Oh, he's really, he's really <laughs> ramming that home. McBain has the police routine down very well, and he writes about it in a sober, unsentimental style. But this particular McBain novel is too superficial, slick, and tricky. He can do better. Must well, try harder. Yeah, that does... Six out of ten. <laughs> See me. Very much so. That was re- reviewed by the man, who I think whose name we've talked about before, is a guy called Newgate Calendar. Newgate Calendar. Well, if you're going to take the opinion of anyone called Newgate Calendar seriously, <laughs> I pity you. That sounds like something you'd buy in a gift shop. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's like a calendar with the months, the back to front. <laughs> well, uh, well, we should really think. I don't know. Yeah. Think about our our opinion of it and and consider what. Well, I, I would. I don't think it's perfect and nor the best. No. So, um, but it, it is very interesting. So I would. Uh, well, certainly. Have certain sympathy. Uh, yeah, I suppose when you start to describe, but not all crimes are like totally baffling and take weeks to sort out. It was, you know, there was part of this where lots are just presented at the um, squad room by patrolmen or yeah. a fairly open and shut case. Yeah. which yeah, not everything is going to be some kind of months long head scratcher, is it? No, and yeah, you got some guys who've held up a shot, a shot. Um, a shop, but if they've discarded their masks and have already got a record, it's not rocket science to apprehend them fairly quickly, is it? Yeah, absolutely. On the subject of basically recommendability, that's a word I've just mm. made up, I think. You know, for a first-time reader, would you give them hail, hail, the gang's all here? Well, you could. You, you, you would have to caveat it in that they're not all like this, but mm. if, the, if if this whets your appetite... It would, uh, it would certainly drop then... them kind of properly right into the world of the 87. Yeah. It's like a sampler, it? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how I think of it. I think It's like a mixtape of... Uh... <laughs> yeah. As long as you don't become really sort of keen on Capec or Delgado and discover I can't that... <laughs> wait to find out yeah. everything that happens to Capec. And I, I, I honestly think when I was reading it, you were thinking, oh, it's a shame these guys don't crop up again. Yeah. And it does miss a bit of an overarching or, you know, where on earth is this going kind of... Hmm. Because you, you, by its very nature, you knew they were going to be wrapped up reasonably quickly. Yeah, it does, so. doesn't, doesn't quite have that that you get from uh, some of the others, but... Yeah. Um, well, but, then, I think that should bring us on to our overall summing up and ooh. entering our information into Kenneth. All right, okay. Well, um, you know, I refuse to do that without consulting the well, uh, the printout. I will, if you could perhaps praise the last few for the right. listeners, Steve-O. Well, we've, uh, we're on a... Um, we, we've been on a, if you equalise it all out, a slight downward trend from beginning to this current point. Yeah. If one... Um, Averages the uh, averages the the spread there. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, we've had two in one, two, three, four, five. In five of the last books, we have had the lowest and two of the highest. So you can tell we're in a period of of fluctuation in terms a of, of fluctuation. Very high, the highs are high and the, what, the what one were low those? is low. 
high scores and the high score was uh, was it doll is that correct i think so yeah and yeah. was it ooh and was it fuzz yeah and the lure was 80 million billion eyes 80 trillion eyes but whereas the first uh, 15 or so very solid then they've got a little bit more erratic but anyway it'd be very interesting from henceforth anyway and yeah, probably the average is about 74, 75 there, I would say. Okay, fair enough. Well, Morgan, then, you can do your summing up, if you would, and award your Kenneth-style points value. Okay, well, I mean, for, for, for all whatever Newtown Colander or whatever he's called says about superficiality and everything, yeah, I, I kind of understand, but... Um, I, I, I thought it was an absolute corker, really. I, I think there's very much to enjoy. It, it's it may be superficial. It doesn't have quite the sort of depth of plotting you sometimes get with these things. But it's it's so much fun. Loads of um, interest. Uh, loads of great characters. I, I I think it's you know not the absolute best, but it's in in the sort of the, the, the upper tier. Definitely, I'm gonna go I'm in with a solid score of I think. 82 police shields? 82 from Morgan. Steve-O. Well, I have already sum- summarised it, didn't I? So, I jumped the gun with me summarising. That's fine. But I do agree, probably 78. 78. Okay. And now I have to give my score. And I will say, in my summary for it, that when I was reading this, and I was reading it a little bit at home, a little bit on the way to work, on the bus and stuff like that, and I was... Just, just having a great time reading mm. it. It's really enjoyable to read. It is. I, I, you're entirely right. It doesn't have any depth of plotting whatsoever because it's not that type of book. Yeah. But it is like having a really special episode of a TV show or a, a really good sampler of a record label where you sort of think, well, everything in here could be brilliant yeah. in and of itself. And I'm enjoying just seeing this weird combination of mix of and mix of stuff as well. Yep. So I'm going to go in exactly the same as Morgan with 82. Marvellous. So that gives us, once Kenneth has done his calculations, and we round down when we use (laughs) Kenneth, because otherwise the cogs don't work. God almighty. (laughs) We round down. Never heard. (laughs) Score of 80 police shields. Well, 80. Well, yeah. Up up a quartile, that definitely. Yeah. Good. It it would be one I would... hand out like a little sampler to people and say you know this could be yours if someone was to ask me what on earth are you yammering about on that podcast i'd be quite happy to hand them this and go this is it absolutely fantastic well we return next time with which one is it next time well much more back to the usual format with sadie when she died oh yeah oh there was some some well, I can't even describe the faces. I think it was both anticipation. Mm. Oh, God, it's a good one. Or is it? We will explain next time <laughs> we talk to you. Unless the next thing you listen to is our bonus episode where we'll talk about the book covers for Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here. We'll talk about 1971 in general and about who you'd cast for Detective Arthur Brown. And we'll see you in a little bar, a little bile. <laughs> oh dear! Right to the end before I said anything completely stupid. We will see you in a little while, hopefully entirely free of a little bile. So I'm going to say goodbye and just shut up. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Fairly well. Bye.